When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We saved the best for last, of course. Uh, don't tell the others. Don't tell them anything. No, I won't say anything. So we're going to go over your career, and then we're going to talk about the new National. And of course, sure. now that the National has started, we can get into a little bit of that too. But I'm going to start way back to when you were at St. Clement's School, <laughs> and uh, you, were, you basically have a head girl. So you want to explain what that meant? I know. I think about it now, like all these years later, and think, what what kind of title is that? You know what? It was a really, it was, it still is, a very small, very good school from grades, at the time, grade 1 to 13. Uh, so I was a lifer. And head girl is is like, I don't know, I guess it's like being school president or something like that. We were your prefects first, and then from the prefects, they choose a head girl. And I, I guess it's just kind of the students choose, and you just sort of try to represent everybody. And... Um, yeah, just try to to be their voice in a way. But, you know, in such a sm- small school, we all had voices, which was kind of nice. When you mention that, I think of it as a mentor, as basically when the younger kids are coming up from the grade 9 or getting into the high school atmosphere, they're looking up to the grade 12s or 13s to give them some guidance. Sure, and we all kind of had responsibilities. I mean, we used to call the little ones the onesie-twosies for the grade ones and twos, and, and part of, at the school, part of it was, you know, you had a responsibility to go and talk to them and maybe help some with their homework, and some of them, you know, you would take turns if, if people would, you know, on their way home from school, if you went the same way as a onesie or twosie, then maybe you would uh, try to go home with them just to make sure everything was okay. It was, it was neat. It was, a, it was a cool leadership opportunity. And now when you were done at St. Clemens, you went to the University of Western Ontario, which is good because, you know what, we've already had two other Carleton alumni on this show. And if you had to say University of Ottawa, like I've told Lisa Laflamme, and like I'll tell anyone that says University of Ottawa, the interview gets cut kind of short. Oh, the, see, that's, see, I actually want, the, I might break your heart here, but I wanted to go to the University of Ottawa. I had applied to the criminology program. Um, I think in my head, I always, I just thought it would be so cool to work in criminology and, and to work as a profiler. And then I was torn. A lot of friends I knew were going to Western, and I, I just decided to do it. I just decided to go. I'm very glad I did, but it could have gone either way there. Uh, I'm looking at my producer, and he's saying we're out of time, Adrian. Uh, <laughs> it's been a pleasure. Thanks very much. Good night. Uh, no, of course. Now you went to University of Western. You got a BA and a master's in journalism. I want to. I, I guess I want to know from just uh, my point of view because you know most students will go do a BA at one school and then do a master somewhere else just for a different approach. Why did you stay at that school for both? You know, I always had, I always just wanted to work, you know, I just, like, I've always been in everything I do, a bit of a horse in the gate, like pushing against it, pushing against it, and I wanted to work. And a couple things really appealed to me about the program. It was short, as in a master's in a year, and I could start it right away, and it was a good school. 
and there was great internship opportunities, and I thought, I'm just going to go for it. Okay. No, that, that makes perfect sense. I mean, some some students, when they look at their BA programs, they'll think, oh, I'm going to be here for three or four years, then, then what's next? Some of them have to wait another year before they do a master's. But, right. Uh, I mean, I, I think I started like maybe three weeks after I graduated from my BA, so uh, I was, yeah, just went right in. You said you were a workhorse. I mean, just when I guess I was being born, you joined the CBC in 1991 as an editorial <laughs> assistant. And that makes me feel so good. Thank <laughs> you. And and a night assignment editor at CBC Toronto. So I mean, you just I mean, you're just fresh out of university and to land that that's pretty impressive. So what did what did they make you do? Well, I mean, firstly, it was an accident. Uh, I had applied to work for As It Happens. I got lost on the way because not the sharpest pencil in the box. Ended up in the TV building on the floor of the National, standing there like a dork, realizing, hmm, doesn't look like radio. I spoke to a really nice man who offered to help me. Turns out he was the executive producer of the National. He never made that call to As It Happens and hired me to be an EA, which was like a copy clerk. Fantastic job because I could listen in on all the meetings and talk to everybody. I mean, the mechanics of the job were that I would deliver the newspapers. The shift was either super early in the morning, so you're delivering the newspapers to all the correspondents and all the uh, assignment people, and then you'd have to sort of split scripts, which is like seven-part pink carbon paper. Somebody would bang out on a typewriter, and if you, you know, if you handled it properly, you could twist the script and pull out all the carbon with one hand and all the actual scripts with the other, and then run up and down the five floors, deliver them. I had like amazing legs of steel then. Not so good at splitting the scripts. And, you know, when when you ripped it, the sort of, not punishment, but lesson was you had to sit down at the typewriter in a big honking hurry and rewrite out all the intros and then go deliver them properly. It was a really good way to make sure you didn't screw that up. And then sometimes I did night assignment, as you say, which is that when everybody would leave, I, I would stay there and, and be the point person for reporters who were out in the field and try to help them with a bit of research. So the first first time I ever worked with Ian Hannah-Mansing was during the L.A. riot. And he called me from a payphone in L.A. and said, you know, can you help me figure out, this is pre-cell phone and pre-smartphone era, can you help me figure out where to go? And so I had this huge map of L.A. on, on this desk and just talking him through the night and saying, I, I've got you, you know, I'll, I'll stay here all night and then we'll get this done. It was, uh, yeah, it was it was a great experience. I was so excited to work with him. And how old were you both at that time? Well, right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, you know, Ian's a bit, I'm 50. Ian, I think, is 56. So we were pretty young. Okay. We were pretty young. No, that's that's interesting. I mean, it's always, uh, I guess, interesting to hear about, like, the first encounters between two journalists or how they developed a friendship. Uh, I mean, I'm sure you guys are friends, right? For sure. No, no. <laughs> For um, sure. You know, Ian, Ian taught me the most, I think, important early lesson. Uh, I, I went out to work in Vancouver, and I ended up working again, uh, researching uh, for him, for, for the National, actually. And we were, I, I can't remember the story, but, but it was, the conversation with the, with the sources was very sensitive. And he said to me, you know, here's a piece of advice. Treat every phone conversation and every interaction you have with someone as if a transcript of it is going to be published in some major newspaper on the front page. And if you can't defend what you're saying, don't say it. 
Mm. And I thought, wow, you know, that's really like sober, strong advice. And uh, it sort of bore into my brain then, and it's still in there now. That explains why when I did the interview with Ian, it sounded like uh, I was interrogating him. No, (laughs) (laughs) you mentioned that when you went to CBC, you were looking for the radio job and ended Mm -hmm. up getting TV. Now, of course, you got your interest in radio at Western from CHRW. Why radio? Well, I think, you know, you, you do what you know, right? And you gravitate to what you know. And, and my world, you know, I grew up in a world where my, my father was a television director, so I was babysat on sets from the time I was like two, you know, napping in the sound blankets. But at home, it was all really about the radio, certainly around mealtimes. I mean, we had a really old radio. I think my mom still has it. The on-off button was taped down, as was the tuning button. And so you, you it sat on a kitchen table, and we'd plug it in and unplug it. And so it would get plugged in for dinner, and we'd listen to As It Happens. And, and on the weekend, we'd have dinner earlier, so we were listening to Cross Country Checkup. And we'd talk. You know, it was just the three of us, and we would talk and talk and talk. And, and listen to the show and the true stories. You know, my dad was spending his days telling stories and, and shooting comedies and stuff, and those were not true stories. They were sort of, they're obviously, they're fiction. And then at night, we'd hear all these true stories. I was just so drawn to these true stories and the art of telling these true stories well. I, I guess my affection for radio w- was really, really strong, still is. You and your dad used to sit and watch TV, and he used to make you, like, kind of snap your fingers at each, like, you know, when when you wanted the next scene to happen or when something should switch. But, surprisingly, he didn't want you to get into the TV business. No, he didn't. I mean, he he was funny. I I, I never really was able to ask him if he was, what that was all about on one level. Because, yeah, we did play these games. So he'd bring me the comics on the Saturday and he'd say, okay, I want you to cross the panel, like circle the panel where they've crossed the axis, which is a real TV TV thing, and I was like eight, and then we would, he would take the remote control, and we'd go through the channels, and he'd say, okay, I want you to tell me if you're looking at 35 millimeter, 16 millimeter, or videotape, like, can you tell the quality of the shot, and then there was the snapping thing, when the shot needs to change, snap your fingers, my poor mom would, like, retreat to another room, saying, you guys are impossible to watch TV with, and, and yeah, I, I was babysat on these sets, my entire childhood. But he saw a crueler side of the business. You know, he's a freelancer, he's a director. The entertainment business has always had a, a, a snaky side to it. People are wonderful and some are not. And he was afraid, I think, that, that you know, his daughter would end up in the entertainment business and it would eat me up and spit me out. And so I gravitated towards journalism, and he was like, come on, just don't do TV, just don't do, do TV. But I, cu- I couldn't get it out of my DNA. I mean, I, I love storytelling. He taught me that, um, and I couldn't let go. I still can't. It's like a catch-22 there. It's like he's telling, it's, he's teaching you the method to get into it, but he's also telling you don't get into it. It's like giving yeah. a dog a bone and then saying, yeah, but no, you don't get that bone. I was only showing Maybe it to it you. Maybe it was his plan. Yeah. <laughs> And of course, the the other thing I want to mention, too, is you became a senior correspondent and also you you went as chief London correspondent and also a foreign correspondent. So you did a lot of corresponding. Still do. Still do. That's true. The one story I want to mention, and it kind of ties in a little bit to your mom's side of the thing, too, is while you're over being a foreign correspondent for three years in Jerusalem, I I believe this is where the rock got hurled at your car and you Mm -hmm. kept the rock. Yep. And uh, you named it, of course... The Rock. Yeah. I, I mean, 
it just makes sense. But of course, it's not built like Dwayne the Rock Johnson, which I said you should name it as. Now, the funny thing is, is you know, with the conflict over there in the Middle East, and like you know, it's a war kind of torn country. You phoned your mom and said, "Hey, we're heading out," and she kind of gave you the opposite advice of saying. Isn't it your job to stay there? Oh, yeah. She's so funny. Um, so that was in Libya uh, in 2011. I had been there for a while, and it was time to go. But getting out was still difficult because there were thousands of people, obviously, at the, at the airport trying to get out. We didn't have uh, a specific flight to anywhere. We were just trying to get on any plane that would take us out, and then we'd wiggle our way back home. Um, the story was not done, but there is a point where you have to start rotating teams out it just it gets to be too much and we always fight about it all of us want to stay but there is a point where you know we are not the boss of us and people say no you know what you're done you you, you may not recognize it but you need to step out for a bit so I called mom on a satellite satellite phone I said hey mom look uh, here's the deal we're, we're gonna try to get out I'm not sure where we're gonna end up but once we're there I'll call you and then we're gonna wiggle our way uh, back home and there was tons of silence and I was like hello is this a sat phone signal and then she goes well isn't the bombing raid supposed to start soon? And I said, well, it, yes. I mean, that, that's why we're sort of doing a, a shift change. Well, isn't it your responsibility to be there? And I thought, ah, you know me. You know, yes, that's exactly what's in my head. And you're fired as my mom. Yeah. The one thing that, of course, I mentioned that everyone has their own kind of strength. Ian has done hosting before. So has Chang. So has Rosemary. Rosemary also does Power and Politics. However, you're a four, you're a four correspondent and now this is kind of like you're being like a rookie almost when it comes to hosting. How? Oh, I am so rookie on this. I, I am. You know, the poor floor directors are uh, sometimes will wave at me, you know, they, they put their hands in like a, a cross motion or they'll wave them around. And I just think, I know you're trying to tell me something probably really important, but I actually am going to clue what it is. And Ian's been very good. Uh, you know, Sunday night, last night, Ian and I were sitting down there together. It was just the two of us hosting. And half the time, he would just quietly say to me, uh, you're going to have to look at camera two, or uh, you're going to have to look at camera three, because I was, I was lost in a sea of paper and red lights. I'll get there, but for now, I uh, yeah, it's like learning something brand new. I watched the first episode, and I, I was watching the live stream and the comments coming in, and people were kind of, it was two, two ways of looking at it. Some comments were saying, oh, I like the new format, like the new studio, like how it's done. And then some people were saying, like, why couldn't they just go with two hosts? Why couldn't they just go with one? But I, I feel like, this is just my opinion on it too, is I feel like a younger demographic is watching it now because there's four hosts, four different kind of perspectives, and it's always going to be getting updated. It's not just going to be over at like 10 o'clock. No, I mean, so, so there are two things to say about that. Firstly, uh, we have enormous respect for all of our viewers uh, across the range and we have we still have and we will continue to have a wide range of people and you know and for the people who were worried that because we've changed the format that we've abandoned the journalism that's not that's not going to happen you've got a team here and the four of us are just part of the team who are insanely dedicated to getting this right and you know we're not we're going to need some patience whether we have the right to ask for it or not i'm i'm not sure that's for other people to decide but we are tweaking every single day in the name of getting it right and the, the point of the four of the four of us is that we can continue to report because we are all reporters 
Ian's off doing stories. I mean, as I'm talking to you right now, he's bolted off to do something. Rosie's packaging something. I was in Syria. I've got a couple other things in the pipe. This matters to us to be able to still report. And so this program is, is designed to allow for that flexibility. And I know it's weird. The first couple nights, there were four of us and people were mm-hmm. like, what is happening? That's only because it was the first couple nights and nobody wanted to not not be on the air. We were all really excited, but it's not going to look like that. There will be a lot of nights where it's just two of us, sometimes three of us, entirely dependent on where the story is and where it takes us. And we we hope that, that people come to sort of understand that it is the story that is the boss of us. I, I like it better in this sense, like I, I believe Rosemary said it as well, is, you know, when Peter was done doing the national if there was still a breaking story you wouldn't hear about till the next day and most right. people know about breaking stories now at like 10 or 11 in the morning it's not new by 10 at night with all of you there now even with chang in vancouver it can still be updated and it's interesting because so last on sunday night so andrew will keep the show hot until 11 p.m eastern or 2 a.m eastern uh, sorry 11 p.m. Vancouver time, 2 a.m. Eastern, Monday to Friday. But Sunday matters very much to us, obviously. So last night it was my turn to keep the show hot until 2 a.m. Eastern, and we were able to do it. And it's a very important feeling to know that if something happens, we're on it. And we need Canadians to know that that we're on it. We're not going to let go. And if something happens at 10, 11, 12, 1, we've got you. <laughs> you know, and, and we tested it a bit last night. We're going to go bigger on it in the weeks to come. It's a logistical thing to, to try to sort out, but we're here. I mean, we were here at like one forty five last night trying to see what else we could get in a, a, about the earthquake just to make sure that people know we've got it. And so we, ne- we need them to have the confidence that uh, at any point from 9 p.m. until 2 a.m. Eastern, we've got them. That should be the new national slogan for the for like you know to bring in the younger crowd as well. The national, we got you. Yeah, we'll work on that. <laughs> um, and of course, in saying all this too, I mean, what are you looking forward most to the national? I mean, you've gone through a few episodes now yourself. What what, what really keeps you excited to keep doing the show? Ah, uh, you know what? It's the stories. I mean, every it's so strange, but that's part of why. I mean, my bio sort of says that I I have a crush on my job, which is absolutely true. I, I always have, mostly because you sort of wake up in the morning, you see something at night, and you say, "Are you kidding me? That is actually happening." And then being able to come in here and and talk about it with these really bright, dedicated people, and the ideas start flying, and the calls start being made, and somebody's running out with a camera. I find that really exciting, like every day really exciting. Uh, and so I'm I'm really looking forward to see just how quickly can we turn this ship. You know, just how quickly can we react in- intelligently, analytically, calmly, and in an interesting way to something that is developing. I am, I'm, we are starting this, but I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing where we can take it. You've got a ton of experience. You've got an Emmy to your name as well, but... It's you were mentioning that in, in taking on this hosting role, you were looking at Rosemary's clips of how she was conducting mm. interviews to get tips. And I was thinking, yep. like, I'm only, what, 26. So when someone's coming at me showing me how to do interviews, even though I've done a few, it's still to me, I'm kind of like I have my own system of how I do it. And, you know, some people say, oh, well, that's not that's kind of being arrogant. But I like how you've got all the experience of knowing how to do an interview, but yet you're still going back to 
learn more from other hosts? Oh, I, I'm learning from all of them every day. And, and you know, of, of course, you know, the likes of Rosie and Ian, who are sp- spectacular at that, Andrew, too. But but everybody else, you know, I've been listening to a, a podcast called The Turnaround with Jesse Thorne, which is a, a podcast about interviewing. And it's, I find it particularly interesting because you hear all sorts of people from Larry King to Katie Couric to the people from NPR, what their styles are for interviewing. And I'm, it doesn't always mean that you can suddenly become that much better overnight, but there are little things that you can learn. I've spent 25 years interviewing people in the field. It's a very different experience from doing an accountability either in a studio or, or in the field. I have a ton to learn, Brian. Like I, I think that's partly why when I hit the pillow at night, I am I am like out before the lights out. I I am done because I think my brain is just <laughs> firing in, in so many different ways. Mostly because I feel like I have so much to learn. Now another podcast you should listen to is Tobin Tonight. Well, of course, that's, well, that's, a, that's a, a given. A, that's a cheap plug, but still, <laughs> Lisa Laflamme actually listens to the podcast, so she'll uh, she'll listen to these episodes and uh, she'll she'll enjoy them. I am. Can I just say I, I spoke to uh, Lisa and Donna Friesen, uh, the host of Global National. Um, Ian and I had a good chat with them at an event uh, a couple weeks ago. These two are, are some. Donna is a very, very dear old friend of mine. I I consider Lisa a very good friend too. We have worked in the field together for a long, long time on all sorts of crazy things. I am. I am a huge fan of these two women, as is Ian. They've been incredibly gracious to us throughout this, and we all agree that each one of us pushing the other to be better it is better for Canadians generally. Yeah, I, I am a massive fan of these two. No, you know what? Like, I agree with that. Like, I, I don't know what your background is in, in some of these interests I'm going to mention, but I grew up watching uh, SNL, and I grew up watching wrestling. And I know that <clears throat> from the time period between maybe... The late 90s or 2000s, SNL was at its best because they were competing with Mad TV yep. and Living Color for an extent. Exactly. A- and the same with in wrestling, you had WWF going against WCW. But now when you look at it and there's not really competition, you can kind of do what you want. So that's mm-hmm. why I think competition is key. But it's yep. friendly competition at that. It's respectful. <laughs> yes. You know, I, I, I find it respectful. Uh, I, I know that one of the things that I dearly love about being a foreign correspondent uh, is that when you're out in the road, I mean, in Syria, for example, uh, I was working with some, uh, alongside some friends from CNN. And, w- you know, we encountered a situation that we had discovered editorially, but it had a safety impact for everyone who was there. And so we went over and said to the CNN crew, hey, listen, guys, this is here here's a thing that's happening. You need to keep your eyes and ears open for this. And they were very gracious and didn't, you know, take the information journalistically, but, you know, felt safer for it. And they have on past stuff to us. And, you know, there is a, a, a respect, a collegial respect uh, in the field. That is really important to me. Some of those relationships uh, have lasted for decades, and it's kind of a really interesting thing about this industry. The last thing we're going to mention as well is when we, because we've gone through all the other three hosts. Andrew Chang said that, the, um, he said, when you're interviewing Adrian, you're going to find that she's very nice. Uh, I'm going to differ with him. No, I'm only kidding. I'm only <laughs> He's kidding. a real jerk. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> the, the last thing I'll mention is, you know, why would you give some advice to maybe someone that uh, is just starting in the field or is going to be graduating just say in the next few months what what kind of advice would you give them in the now changing industry that is journalism 
I would say walk away, no, run away from the people who tell you that it's a bad time in the industry or there aren't any jobs. You don't need those voices in your life. It is not true. The jobs are changing. I don't think... I mean, I, I have friends who, who were worked in the industry a long, long time ago who constantly express how envious they are of us now because we have so many different platforms. If I could do it all over again, I would get way better at languages. Uh, I would have at least one or two under my belt that would help. I would start traveling more. Um, yeah, I would, you know, and don't get so wrapped up in the technology. You can be the best one in your class at a certain piece of tech, and you go have lunch and come back, and it's changed, and suddenly you're not the best anymore. Please focus on the, the core storytelling skills, the, you know, the ethics, the law, um, the, the basic structures of storytelling and writing. Those will, those will help you no matter what the tech becomes. That's going to do it for this episode of Tobin Tonight. Our thanks to Adrian Arsenault for coming on the show. Remember, you can find past, present, and future episodes on TobinTonight.com, Spotify, and iTunes. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and leave a comment or two. For Tobin and myself, this is Jacob saying Thanks for listening, and good night. Hi, I'm Steve Yurko. And I'm Tara Sands. Now available from Maji Media is our new podcast, Four Kids Flashback. Four Kids is the company who brought you the English dub of Pokemon in the late 90s and so many other shows like Yu-Gi-Oh!, Shaman King, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Kirby, the infamous One Piece dub, and so many more. We'll be talking to the people who worked at Four Kids. Actors, directors, writers, editors, producers, engineers, you get the point. And hopefully get the answers to questions both you and I have about the company. I actually worked there as a voice actor on some of the shows. And I was a kid watching the shows and remember way more than Tara does. And thank God for that. Steve is actually a professional storyboard artist, which gives some really unique insights into anime and animation. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts. That's the number four Kids Flashback. Hi, this is Candace Sampson, the voice behind What She Said. My show is your destination for stories that not only entertain, but also educate and empower. Every week, I spotlight strong female voices from across Canada, women who are changing the narrative and driving change. Don't miss out on these inspiring episodes. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and Amazon Music, or head over to whatshesaidtalk.com. What She Said can also be heard on BlastTheRadio.com, Mondays at 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7 p.m. That's BlastTheRadio.com. It's time to dive into the stories that truly matter. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.